Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here and welcome back to The Daily Evolver. It's good to be back in the groove of doing this podcast again, live, with this my first episode of the new year. Thanks, as always, to Integral Life for hosting this podcast on their Integral Live channel. And if you have not become a member of Integral Life, I would encourage it. It is the central portal for the Integral community, home of Ken Wilbur, and well worth supporting and uh, you know being supported by. I would also encourage you to check out my personal site, dailyevolver.com, where I have many years of archives of podcasts and webcasts on all sorts of topics. So dailyevolver.com. All right. So I guess I <laughs> have to start today out with some comment on the wall and Trump and the shutdown and, and all of it. So here we are, Tuesday the 8th, and President Trump is giving a talk tonight, a special talk where people are afraid that he is going to declare a state of emergency and build his wall with the military. At any rate, it illuminates some of what's going on evolutionarily, and that's what I always want to focus on. So uh, I'll just start by relaying a little incident that I was part of, and I think it was the night before last, a friend of, me, a friend of mine called, and she had just watched, watched Chris Matthews, and she was just outraged over Trump and this whole border fiasco and, and flim-flam and how it was an unconscionable flouting of longstanding tradition and a dangerous precedent with the military and the whole thing. And what did I think she wanted to know? And so I'd listened to her and I was wondering, so what do I think? And I get all that. It's outrageous. Trump is outrageous. I can't be called on to defend him. But I also have a hard time getting real worked up about it. And I realized, and I conveyed to her, and she knows we're, we're very close, she knows me, that you know, part of it is just a weakness in my own typology. I'm an introvert. I'm a five with a six wing. I have a lot of anxiety. My nervous system can only handle so much of this Trump thing. And so I don't subject myself to it any more than I have to. I certainly keep up, but I don't have to marinate it. So, you know, so there's that. It's sort of an acting out of weakness. But there's also part of it that I think is acting out of strength in the sense that I just don't buy into the catastrophizing story anymore. Certainly not like I used to for the left or the right. And so I was talking to her and I was telling, telling her that, you know, we could actually see some good scenarios that could come out of this if he indeed does it. Maybe this is the pivot point for what we've all been waiting for, which is real good old fashioned American institutional opposition, division of powers, opposition to Trump, certainly in our new House of Representatives, but also possibly in the Supreme Court, where this will undoubtedly head right quick if he does it. And she was like, yeah, well, that's true. You know, and, you know, I was feel like I was making a little dent in her sort of anger about it all. And then I pointed out that even if he does get his money 
5 billion, 6 billion, 10 billion in the scheme of things. If this is what it takes to mollify a third of the population that feels like the wall is the most important thing in their political lives, that's a bargain. I wish we could do that for the left. So, you know, of course, the argument is, is for her is that there is no crisis on the border and so forth. But if you watch Fox News, there's another story, not all of which is wrong. And that's just that, you know, somewhere along the line, 11 million people got here illegally. That's some significant part of the population. And whether it's now or the next downturn or chaos in Mexico and Central America, a wall's going to help. So I'm like, you know, let's let it happen. And then even, you know, we'll see what comes of that, especially as in reality, it would be tempered and built in, you know, it wouldn't be the wall that Trump has talked about, but he would claim it was. And, you know, that would sort of sort itself out as it was being actually constructed or whatever would happen. And I could sense she was a little <laughs> less on board with that theory, but at least she could hear me out. And um, I just went on to explain one of the themes that I talk about a lot on this podcast, and that is that forward movement, whether it's our own individual growth or in cultural evolution, is herky-jerky and what looked bad turns out good and the other way around. And we never know how things are going to turn out. And I think I got silence on that. And so I reached into one of my, you know, surefire bag of tricks and pulled out the parable of the Chinese farmer, which I told her, I said, you got to hear this parable. It only takes a minute. And so the parable of the Chinese farmer is there's a Chinese farmer. And this is in the olden days when people were wise. And um, so the Chinese farmer has a horse and the horse runs off. So the neighbors come to the farmer and say, oh, what terrible fortune. And the farmer says, well, maybe yes and maybe no. So the next day, his horse returns, this time with a wild mare. And everybody goes, wow, you got two horses. How great. And the farmer says, well, maybe yes and maybe no. So the farmer's son was riding the new wild mare and was thrown off and broke his leg. And everybody says, oh, how terrible, your son broke his leg. And the farmer says, maybe yes and maybe no. So then a few days later, the emperor is sending out his troops, conscripting uh, all the able-bodied young men to go fight in the war. And his son is spared because he has a broken leg. And the story can go on and on and on. And my friend said, wow, that's a really great story. You should put that on the Daily Evolver. And I said, I have about 10,000 times. Uh, and actually, I, I went to uh, find one of my uh, favorite uh, little teachings on that parable by Alan Watts. And it was on page 10 <laughs> of the Google uh, results, uh, of which I think there was, uh, gosh, I want to say 680,000 on the parable of the Chinese farmer. Anyway, I'll link to Alan Watts' version. Uh, and I love one of the lines that he said in his teaching about this parable. He said, the whole, this is Alan Watts. The whole process of nature is an integrated process of immense complexity, and it is impossible to know whether anything that happens is going to be good or bad. And um, so, you know, so I, I, I make my case that 
the evolutionary theory actually adds to this parable of the Chinese farmer because it's not just good, then bad, then good, then bad, in some steady state. The whole system is moving, is being drawn by the values gravity of goodness, truth, and beauty. And over time, there's progress in those directions. And we can see that, of course, because people are like, what do you mean by that? But it's obvious. We can see that the catastrophe of human history, all the ups and downs and you know, inhumanity of human history has brought us to where we are, which is, um, and I'll share this with you, 2018, the best year in human history. A, a column by Nick Kristoff in the New York Times. I always loved it. He actually does this column yearly, I think. He's done it a couple years for sure. And, you know, as he says, listen, I, I spend the other 364 days a year looking at the worst conflicts and the worst uh, inhumanity on the planet. And he does. I mean, the, Nick Kristoff is a bleeding heart liberal in the best sense of the word. I really love the guy. But here he makes the case that 2018 is the best year in human history. Subhead, once again, the world's population is living longer and living better than ever before. And he goes on to give all of the wonderful statistics about that in terms of, I think it's 300,000 people get electricity anew every day. 300,000 or so get fresh water that never had it before. And as he sums it up, Never before has such a large portion of humanity been literate, enjoyed a middle-class cushion, lived such long lives, had access to family planning, or been confident that their children would survive. Let's hit pause at our fears and frustrations and share a nanosecond of celebration at this backdrop of progress. And that gives you a sense of how progress is seen by the contemporary intelligentsia. It only gets a nanosecond, and they're still apologetic about that, but so be it. Um, actually, I wanted to just show quickly another one that caught my eye, and this is The Economist cover story. And this surprised me. It's called Staying Alive, Why the Global Suicide Rate is Falling. So even that suicide rate, which is rising in the United States, but globally is falling. And it turns out that there are a number of reasons why, but one of the biggest is that women in developing countries are finding ways out of abusive relationships with their husbands and in-laws, where before they would throw themselves off the cliff because that was the only way out. And that's, you know, worth celebrating. So anyway, back to my friend. I'm not sure I went into all of this with her, but I did make the case that when you become liberated <laughs> from the vicissitudes of circumstances and the up and down of, you know, every episode of the Trump show, that that's a good thing. But <laughs> that's where I lost her. Uh, there was a silence. And then she came back with, I don't care. I still hate this son of a bitch and want to see him go down. So I probably should have quit while I was ahead. But, you know, it actually, I thought a, a good bit about it because I realized that I, I think I can overdo the equanimity side of the equation and underdo the part that says that anger and 
engagement is part of the equation as well. You know, a positive anger that's still very juicy. And, you know, we're seeing it play out more and more in the public sphere, in, in what we would call the polite, or at least hitherto, is that a word? Uh, polite society. And uh, any of you who were pay any attention to um, American politics, I'm sure saw this, which is the video of the new representative Rashida Tlaib, where she talks about how we're going to impeach the motherfucker, re- referring to Trump. And that that's what she tells her baby boy, that he can relax. The bully doesn't always win because we're the good people are going to get in there and impeach the motherfucker. People love you and you win. And when your son looks at you and says, Mama, look, you won. Bullies don't win. And I said, baby, they don't. Because we're going to go in there. We're going to impeach the motherfucker. Of course, that caused a, a sensation and, um, uh, you know, big blowback from the right that actually wasn't as strong as I would have suspected, uh, because I, I think a lot of them have been adequately shamed by Trump and that, you know, is a certain kind of progress, too, because we can see that over time. What is in every step of its progression is decried as a coarsening of the dialogue, as a, you know, coarsening of society is actually a liberation that society has enjoyed uh, in, in every case, as it moves out of traditionalism. And so just briefly, traditionalism or the amber stage of altitude development, its job is to civilize the chaotic impulses of the previous stage, which is red, which is you know undisciplined and can't sit down and shut up and you know is aggressive and all of the stuff that Um, We know about that, what we call the warrior stage of development. And uh, traditionalism is meant to civilize that. And so you can see that the epitome of that, where it was really the most civilized, the most successful, at least in Western um, culture, is the Victorian time. And that was a time where, you know, propriety ruled, manners, and of course, you know, beneath the surface, there was a cauldron. But at least on the surface, a glimpse of stocking was looked on as pump- something shocking. And now, as the song goes, as and now heaven knows anything goes. Because as we move out of traditionalism into modernity, you know, we have the sexual revolution. That certainly doesn't look like progress to traditionalists. But of course, it is in many ways in terms of liberation. So every stage of this game, this incivility, is in in its upside a taking off of a straitjacket. And we could see that people, and this is, I think, part of the new sophistication in our understanding of this is that we realize that 
Incivility is coming from every direction. I mean, Trump's his own case because Trump actually is coming from red in many ways from that warrior stage. But from, you know, your garden variety, conservative and liberal, we really only hate incivility when it's coming from the other side. We actually like it when it's coming from our side. But I think we're getting that. I think we're getting hip to that. And this is part of the forward movement of culture. And there's a few things that I've seen recently that have really caught my eye on, on this theme. And let me see, one of them here is, this is just the latest Time Magazine. And um, they're talking about uh, new takes on the new you. These are self-improvement books. And one of them is How to Hold a Grudge. It's written by this British crime writer, Sophie Hannon. And she says that she wants people to start keeping a grudge budget, which she calls a grudget. And as she points out, a grudge doesn't have to be, ve- have to be vengeful, all-consuming, and bitter. It goes on. And I actually looked at the book uh, a bit. And, and the idea is very good. And that is to become aware of our grudges and to see them for what they are and where they come from. And it's actually a process that turns, it's, you know, it's the evolutionary engine. What used to be something that was us becomes something that we can see and observe. It becomes an object of our bigger subject, right? And that's, of course, how we grow. So, I, I see the the one of the big self improvement books of the year is a book. It's called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, and I can't imagine how people would have uh, well that the book would never have been published back in the day when I was reading the big self help book of its day back in the probably sixties or seventies, How to Win Friends and Influence People, which taught you how to be nice and listen to other people. And be curious about them, which is very, very, still very important, a huge book in my life. But also this, this idea of not giving a fuck. And that's a whole meme. That's not just this book. There, there's a couple big communities on Reddit, for instance, that are all about how not to give a fuck. And the idea is not to not care. The idea is to become aware of what we care about in ways that are liberating so that we can drop the, 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 uh, the, the, the circumstances that weigh us down that we have no control over or how other people feel in ways that we can't control and we liberate ourselves from that. So it's ultimately a very good thing, but it is part of this new, I think, evolutionary move in culture where we are uh, beginning to turn towards the our um, you know dysfunctional, or painful, or angry uh, feelings that we used to not want to even admit were there. Uh, another thing that caught my eye on this is an article in the good old Boulder Daily Camera, and this is a article about. Professor June Gruber, and she's an assistant professor in the Department of Psychology and Neuroscience at the University of Colorado. And here she is with her dog, Piedmont. It's so bolder, I can't stand it. But she says to stop focusing on happiness as an emotion that we, that, that we you know, want above all. 
So the article goes on to say that those who experience a wide variety of emotions tend to be healthier and happier. So including the negative emotions, so to speak. She takes the idea of biodiversity, the variety of life on earth, and applies it to emotions. And she says, just as greater biodiversity has been shown to increase resistance to disease and invasive species, her study found that greater emodiversity, emotional diversity, emodiversity, showed a decreased risk for depression, fewer days spent in the hospital, and other good things. She says, this suggests that taking a non-judgmental view towards emotions rather than trying to suppress certain ones and being critical of others could create a more, quote, balanced emotional harmony in everyday life. To apply this mindset to a New Year's resolution, Gruber suggests striving for meaning rather than happiness, as well as connectedness with others and accepting the range of emotions that people encounter every day. And and that's the cool thing about this sort of new sophistication around anger and these unwanted emotions, that they actually do bring us closer. And I was surprised to see this article in the um, Atlantic cover article, Why Are We So Angry? The Untold Story of American Rage and Where It Is Taking Us. They talked about research that shows that in the vast majority of cases, expressing anger results in all parties becoming more willing to listen, more inclined to speak honestly, more accommodating of each other's complaints. People reported that they tended to be much happier after yelling at an offending party. They felt relieved, more optimistic about the future, more energized. And I have experienced that firsthand, not often, but when I have, with somebody I'm close to, had a blowout fight and told the truth in ways that maybe neither of us had up until that point. It could go either way, I suppose, but in my case, it has definitely relieved a lot of tension and brought us closer. They talk about in the studies that they refer to that the ratio of beneficial to harmful consequences is about three to one for angry persons. So three benefits to one detriment with anger. So here, so how about the recipients of the anger? It says more than two thirds of the recipients of anger said that they came to realize their own faults. Their relationship with the angry person was reportedly strengthened more often than it was weakened. And the targets more often gained rather than lost respect for the angry person. And it turns out that this can be used consciously in public policy. They also tell a story of a, what seems like a crazy experiment that was done in Israel, where there was a group of, and I'll read this, a group of Israeli social scientists who wanted to conclude, I'm sorry, wanted to conduct an experiment disguised as an advertising campaign. They would run ads in a small conservative Tel Aviv Aviv suburb where many people were religious and supported right-wing politicians. 
The proposed experiment ran counter to most of psychology's conventional teachings. The best known theories regarding how to reduce conflict and prejudice within a population are known as the, quote, contact hypothesis, unquote. That is, if you can get everyone who hates each other to just talk in a controlled, respectful manner, they'll eventually start speaking civilly. They won't like each other, but prejudices may fade and moral outrages will mellow. Well, as they say in this article, the researchers figured that the contact hypothesis had clearly been developed by someone who had never been to Israel. <laughs> so they were going to try something else. So they went to this suburb called Gibbet Shmuel, Shmuel, Gibbet Shmuel. So the, the polls were very clear in the suburb. The residents did not want to spend time with Palestinians. They did not also did not want a bunch of academics lecturing them on how to become more open-minded. So researchers came up with a clever idea. Don't tell everyone in Givet Shmuel that they're wrong. Tell them that they're right. A perpetual war with Israel's neighbors makes a lot of sense, tell them. If anything, the people of Givet Shmuel ought to be even angrier than they are. And so with the help of an advertising agency, the social scientists created online ads celebrating the tensions between Israelis and Palestinians and extolling the virtue of fighting for fighting's sake. One ad showed iconic photos of Israeli war heroes and proclaimed, without war, we wouldn't have had heroes. For heroes, we probably need the conflict. Another one, the ad said, without war, we would never be moral. For morality, we need conflict, and so forth. So they ran these ads a lot. This is 2015. Over a six-week period, according to polling, nearly all of the 25,000 residents of uh, Givet Shmuel saw the ads. So what happened? This is after the advertising. The the percentage of right-wing residents who said that Arabs were solely responsible for Israel's past wars decreased by 23%. The number of conservatives who said Israel should be more aggressive towards Palestinians fell by 17%. Incredibly, they write, even though the advertisements never mentioned settlements, 78% more people said that Israel should consider freezing construction on the West Bank and Gaza. And then they point out, as a control, residents in nearby towns who hadn't seen the ads were surveyed as a control. They showed no such evolution in their views over the same period. So that seems pretty dramatic, maybe a little too good to be true in a way, but hey, it's uh, social science research. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll see that replicated. It'd be nice to see that replicated if it is indeed uh, as powerful as it seems. All right. But you see that in all of this, the goal of actually surfacing and working with the real anger that's there. It's not, we're not creating, it's, it's there. The goal of this surfacing is not to blow other people away with it. It's actually to become closer. And we do that through 
another of the great engines of both individual and cultural evolution. We differentiate and we then, once we see the pieces that, that were previously fused together, uh, then we can integrate them. And there's a wonderful process for this that I was exposed to back, gosh, maybe in the, I'm thinking the late 80s. And it was the Foundation for Community Encouragement, which was a nonprofit foundation put together by Scott Peck, MD. And Scott Peck, of course, wrote the book, The Road Less Traveled, which was the biggest selling book of the 80s, basically, uh, and uh, one of the great self-help books of all time, a very, very important book in my life that, you know, one of the results of reading it for me was a atheist, secularist, intellectual re-encountering God. So, you know, I can't overstate what Scott Peck did for me. And I was fortunate enough to become friends with him because we, uh, my company did the seminar version of his book. Uh, but in this Foundation for Community Encouragement, what he did was he would bring, bring large groups of people together, sometimes 40, 50, 60 people. And you would do one thing and one thing only. And that is you as strangers would sit in a large circle in a gymnasium or some room that they had rented. And you would just sit there and you would follow two rules that Scott Peck brought from Quakerism, which he was raised as a Quaker. And that in Quaker meetings, there are two sins of communication. And so you are to avoid these two sins. And this was the only instruction for these 50 strangers sitting in a circle. And one is to, sin number one to be avoided is to speak when not moved. So self-awareness, really important. And to avoid speaking when you're not moved. Don't just speak because you're uncomfortable. Don't just speak because you want to be seen. Speak because you actually have something to say that is important for this group to hear. So that's a, that's a very, very important orienting principle. But the second one is the one that's a real killer. And that is sin number two is, sin number one is speak when not moved. Sin, sin number two is to not speak when moved. Uh, so in other words, if you are moved to speak, and again, as an introvert for me, this is very difficult. You can't not do it. You have to speak. And so those are two very powerful principles. And so we sat there for three, four days. And what happened happened like clockwork. And Scott Peck had laid it out as just sort of a deep structure of human relations. And that is that we move through four discernible stages as we build community. And of course, this is the foundation for community encouragement. He's trying to figure out a way to create community among people who are different. <clears throat> so again, four stages. First is we start with pseudo-community. And pseudo-community is where we have an undifferentiated sense that we're all closer and 
than we think. And this is just that public face where we all agree more or less on what we need to agree on in order to function as a complex society. And we do that. And if you think about the world before this latest cultural polarization that I guess you could argue started in the 90s with Clinton and Gingrich and so forth, I think that's roughly true. But before that, it's not like we didn't have traditionalists and modernists and even postmodernists who came really online in the 60s. It's just that we didn't realize how different we were. And that's good. It's fine. Again, it's functional for, you know, a surface relationship, which is what we needed. But the problem is with it is that over time, it becomes boring. And that is not okay <laughs> with human beings. We refuse to be bored. And so we move into the next stage, which is uh, step two. So step one, pseudo community. Step two, conflict. And this is where we say, wait a minute. Uh, it's obvious the way the world is. Of course, we have our own worldview. And the people who don't have our worldview are either blind or stupid or co-opted or they're fucking with us or, you know, because it's obvious the way things are. I mean, God's in his heaven. God's not in his heaven. There's all kinds of things that are the function of worldview that once we become hip to it and, and, and aware of how other people are thinking, we just have to get in there and get in these, each other's business. Now, that doesn't look like progress. And in fact, this, is, this hangs a lot of people up. Uh, one of whom, and I pointed this out in um, an uh, episode from last year where I critiqued Jordan Peterson, who is a uh, you know, popular intellectual who, for whom it is self-evident, for instance, that male-female relationships are deteriorating because of Me Too. Uh, that uh, racial relationships are deteriorating. And it's simply because, you know, the, the people have, the, again, this steady state idea of reality. It's not a growth system. It's a steady state system where there's some ideal of the way we should be. And if we're conflicting, then there's something wrong and things are falling apart and it's frightening. And it, it is frightening. But from an evolutionary view, we see that, good Lord, conflict is just, excuse me, the stuff of evolution and natural selection. So is love, but so is conflict. And so this is a feature of the development of relationship. So that's why it's number two in Scott Peck's system. So we start pseudo community, then we get into conflict. And the third stage is, and I love this stage, it's uh, you know, I don't love it because it feels good, but it's it's a beautiful stage. And that is the stage of what he calls emptiness. And this is where it's just like, fuck you people. There, I, there I've said it. You know, I, 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 I've tried my best to set you straight. I can't apparently convince you of the rightness of my view. And so I give up. And that turns out to be a very fruitful thing to give up. Surrender is a very good thing sometimes. And 
so we, you know, we spent a little time giving up and walking through the desert and feeling all alone and rejected. And, you know, until finally it just dawns on us that, you know, I'm me and you're you and you see it this way and I see it this way. And we start to see other people more for who they are. And we're willing to be seen for who we are, warts and all. And there's a certain sense in which it's post-propriety. It's, and basically, we're t- when we talk about moving beyond propriety, we're, we're talking about moving beyond that pseudo-community, that first stage. And if you think about the people that you have been the closest to in your life, those are people that you've been around the bend with, probably. You know, you've had your conflict, you've had your emptiness, you've gotten at it. This is uh, me and my friend who I was talking about earlier. We've been, you know, around the block with each other. And as a result, we can talk uh, truth to each other. We can um, be rude. Uh, There's uh, incivility that sometimes rears its head because we can see that there's actually it's happening in a bigger container of acceptance and even love. And so we end up and this is what is so um, amazing about the work of the Foundation for Community Encouragement is the people who don't even know and, 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 and they didn't even want us to necessarily understand what was happening as we entered these big circles. But through the two rules of not speaking when not moved and speaking when you are moved, the circles would move through every stage. There'd be a pseudo community where everybody is sort of all happy and, yo, look at you and hey, everybody. And then conflict as the more truth arose. Emptiness. Everybody wanted that. We're done with this. This is stupid. I hate this. When's this over? I, I literally left. Uh, they wouldn't let me, but I tried. Uh, <laughs> uh, actually, Scott was there and he convinced me to come back. But, you know, this is what happens. And then finally, we just say, okay, there's an exhale and there's the beginning. There's a possibility then for authentic community. But, you know, I can see that in real life, it can go either way. And that you know, anger can build on itself in a bad way. I always think of the just basic Buddhist uh, uh, formulation. When you're having these emotions, are you burning karma? That is, are you releasing these emotions into open space by feeling them, by seeing them, by expressing them in a healthy way? Or are you creating karma? And that is more contraction, more revenge, more stuff to actually work with in a bad way. And the, the, the practice around that, the integral practice around that, or Buddhist practice, but I think what is very, very powerful for an integral practitioner is to just see it instead of be it. And again, this is that engine of evolution where the subject becomes what what used to be subject becomes object. So what I thought was me, I can see, ooh, now I can see that me from a bigger me. And that very act of seeing my anger, seeing my sadness, seeing my frustration, seeing my emptiness, seeing yours, 
you know, that's all liberating. Because at that point, once I could see it instead of be it, I don't just play it out. I'm not just reacting. I'm not just conditioned. I have choice. And, um, and once you have choice, you could pretty much trust yourself to make the better choice. It's just we're, we're programmed for that. And uh, it's fun to watch ourselves do it. So, um, yeah. So we could be a little friendlier to our anger. We could be a little friendlier to other people's anger. And, um, you know, that's going to come in handy here, I think, in 2019. So let's do it. All right, folks, thanks for tuning in to the Daily Evolver. We will see you next time back here. And uh, in the meantime, take care and keep it integral. All right.